Lot's servants, they begin fighting and bickering with Abram's servants. And even though Lot, his father, passed away, he really owes all his life to Abram. All the blessings in his life are because of Abram. They both had tons of possessions, tons of people, tons of cattle. And instead of Lot just submitting to his elder, telling his servants, what is wrong with you? You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for Abram. Instead, Abram, being so kind and loving and gracious to Lot, gives him first dibs and picking whatever he wants, whichever area of land he wants to go, and Abram promises to go the other way. And Lot, with this decision, he doesn't come to his senses. He doesn't have the gratitude in his heart to tell his uncle, I owe everything to you. You pick where you want to go, and I'll go the opposite way. Instead, he chooses with his own eyes. He chooses with the flesh. He allows comfort and ease to be what guides and marks his decision-making, and he heads towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't go there yet in chapter 13, but it says that he pitched his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know through God's word, Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a place, a land, where the people were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. So all that Lot has seen is his uncle who's constantly Building altars and sacrificing to the Lord. Building altars and sacrificing to the Lord. Leaving the gods of his dad. Leaving the idols of his dad. And he's following in faith this God that he has never seen. But yet Lot chooses with his eyes, with his flesh, and with what's most comfortable. If you would, we could turn to Genesis 12 verse 1. And we could be reminded of the Lord's promise for Abraham. And there's different types of promises in the Bible, but this is one kind of promise that he commands us to do something, sort of cause and effect. We're commanded to do something, and then the Lord says, hey, I'm going to bless you with this. So in chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see Abram wasn't being completely obedient to the Lord and to his will. And that's why the bickering started with Lot and his servants. But once Lot leaves in chapter 13, we begin seeing the Lord speaking to Abram once again. So often is the case with us. We're in a time, Lord, I don't hear from you. I don't get anything from my devotional time like I used to. I sit in church and I don't understand anything. And the question, family, is are you being obedient to the Lord? What was the last thing he commanded you to do? Go back to doing that and then see if you hear his voice once again. But once Abram is finally obedient, completely obedient to God's commandments towards him, the Lord begins speaking to him once again. And the Lord, instead of reprimanding Abram for his poor decision making, instead of we talked about the long and quiet camel ride home between Abram and Sarai, Instead of the Lord reminding him about that, the Lord reminds him of all the promises and blessings and plans that he still had for Abram's life. Again, the God of grace and the God of love that we serve. But now we come to chapter 14 and verses 1 through 9. They're going to tell us about the first war that's recorded within the Bible. We're going to see how 
well or not so well, I'll do reading these names, but there's a lot here to do with Lot and Abraham and a lot of soul searching for us and how we deal with other people. But we'll read verses 1 through 9. It reads, And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, and Chedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Sinab, king of Adma, and Shemember. That was Amanda's favorite one because he couldn't remember. Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, all these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the salt sea. Twelve years they had served Chedolaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karaim and the Zuzim in Ham and the Imim in Shaveth Kiriathaim and the Horites in Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they, then they turned back and came to En Mishpat. That is Kadesh, and they conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Haz as on Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim against Chedo Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Sinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. So a quick synopsis of this. Basically, there were kings, and this one king charged them all taxes for protection, right? Basically like the mafia. He was going to protect them, but they had to pay. And after 12 years, they grew sick of it, and now they rose up to fight and battle against them. Four kings, four kingdoms, four cities versus five kings, five kingdoms, five cities on their own home turf. And now we're going to see here in verse 10, they did not use their home court advantage very well. Verse 10, it says, Now the valley of Siddim that was full of tar pits and kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they fled and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. Again, if we just stop here at verse 11, we can all say, what in the world does this have to do with Abram or Sarai or Lot or anything like that? Because Sodom and Gomorrah, to our knowledge, Lot, right, he pitched his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah, looking at the beautiful view of the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what we see... Same thing that happens to us with sin in verse 12. It says, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed. For he was living in Sodom. And family, this is what happens to us when we make our decisions based on comfort, based on our flesh, and based on what's easiest. It's a slippery slope into falling into sin. And in the beginning, Lot, he just looks with his eyes and he sees how lush and beautiful this valley is. 
he probably knew how sinful the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were. So he says, hey, I'm just going to be on the outskirts. I'm just going to be on the edge. I'm not going to be in the city. But what happens is he falls right into the city. Charles Spurgeon, he tells us, since Lot lived among the wicked people of Sodom, we are not surprised he was also taken captive. Those believers who conform to the world must expect to suffer for it. Those believers who conform to the world must expect to suffer for it. Again, what kind of a God would we serve if we have many blessings based on our obedience to him? Based on our love for him, we have all these blessings and promises that if we build our lives on the rock, we'll go through storms and not have our homes, our lives crush and crumble. What type of a God would we serve if people, when they fall into sin, people when they go back to sin, people when they turn backs on God, is they will be completely protected from suffering and from shame. It is not the case. Lot, he has to deal with the consequences of his sin. Again, his poor decision making. Robert Jameson, he says, whenever we go out of the path of our duty, we put ourselves away from God's protection. And we cannot expect that the choice we make will be for our lasting good. When we're in sin, when we're in the flesh, we make terrible decisions. We make horrific decisions, right? Some people, they go off to Las Vegas and they make big decisions. And they're usually what? Terrible decisions, whether it's betting everything on number seven, whether it's getting married real fast or whatever it may be. Terrible decision making. And that happens to us when we are in sin. When we're blinded that we're serving the God of comfort and the God of ease instead of the God of this world. We make bad decisions and Lot does the same. Instead, we're required, we're commanded to do the exact opposite. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. The Lord tells us through Paul to the church of Corinth, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Family, God's commandment to us is to be separate from unbelievers. It's to be separate from them. And for most of us, we're already 40 hours in the hole, right? Most of us, we work with unbelievers. We deal with them all the time. So we're already 40 hours on the wrong end of the scale. What are we doing with our free time family? Who are we choosing to go out with? Where are the areas that we're choosing to spend our free time in? Is it truly a place that we can say is the temple of God and the Holy Spirit? Or are we going to places that are temples of the flesh? Places where poor decisions are made left and right. We need to be obedient to the Lord. We're going to see here in a little bit, Abram, he surrounds himself with people who are his own allies. That's who he surrounds himself with. That He needs to go to war and they go out with him. 
But Lot, he got taken. Him, all his possessions, if he had any family, they got taken away. And there was nothing he can do about it. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, you can write it down. It reads, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Family, who are we surrounding ourselves with? We need to be surrounded by believers. We need to be surrounded by the people of God. Parents, who are you allowing your sons and daughters to surround themselves with, to spend their free time with? Is it unbelievers or is it believers? Is it people that are drawing them nearer to the Lord or is it people that are drawing them away from the Lord? We need to be engaged. We need to be proactive. If not, we will be like Lot and us and our possessions will be taken away by other pagan people. We need to pay attention to this. We need to turn to the Lord. And maybe you're here and say, man, I use it as ministry. I use it to, man, speak to them. Christ warns us that you got to go two by two. You have to go two by two. We don't have any mission trip here as uh, Calvary Chapel, Miami, that we send people as Casas would say, Han Solo, right? We don't send anybody on their own on a mission trip. Hey, you go by yourself on a mission trip. Do you know of any wars that are fought with one man by himself? Hey, you soldier, we're going to send you completely by yourself and you defeat and topple this entire government, right? I want you, I didn't, not even Chuck Norris, right? They send him against ISIS. Hey, you go against ISIS. No, that's not the way it works. And for us, we need to be so wise and careful and not puffed up with pride, thinking that we can defeat our flesh or the enemy or our own sin, always being around unbelievers and not being filled with the Lord and his word and surrounding ourselves with other Christians, other men, other women of the faith. We go back to Genesis 14. We see Lot is taken because of these kings and their feud Uh, Their battle between power and taxes, right? Nothing's changed in this world uh, with when it comes to men and kings and battles and war. But now we look at Genesis 14, verse 13, and it tells us then a fugitive came and he told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is the first time we see the word Hebrew used. And Abram, he's called Abram the Hebrew. And what this tells us, what this shows us is that other people knew the God that Abram served. People knew about him. People knew his fame, again, from one area to another. This guy's a fugitive. He barely makes it out with his life. And he comes to Abram the Hebrew. Hey, you're the one that your nephew talked about. You're the one that people are talking about that is following a God that has left his his family, his home, all that he's known to follow and serve. And again, family, do people know who you are? Or are you a double agent in Christianity, right? Nobody knows who you are. In church, you're one person. At work, you're another on the courts, you're another person. Who are you? Are you truly a son and daughter of the Lord? The next thing we see here is that Abram, he had faith in God. 
We know he had such a great faith that, again, he left his family, he left his homeland, and he was heading east with no specific destination. Again, I don't think any of us would really be down for that. Hey, you want to go on a road trip? Sure. Where are we going? East. Wait, what? You can't really just type that. E- e- what? You can't really just type that out in the GPS, right? East. Nothing. What are you talking about, right? And that's what Abram is doing in his step of faith. But his faith in the Lord was not laziness or just waiting for things to happen. He had prepared, trained men. It wasn't that he began training them once he heard of this war. He had trained men in his home that he raised up, that he grew up. So for us, we should have faith in the Lord, but we should not be lazy, We should also be prepared in this life. We need to be prepared in this life. And what good could Abram do? These four kings just defeated five kings on their home turf. So what could one man and 318 servants do against four kingdoms and four cities? And again, imagine being in Abram's sandals, if you would, right? His last altercation with Lot was that he was completely hard-faced. Lot and his people, they're complaining to Abraham and his servants. Abram, he does just grace and mercy and says, all right, Lot, you choose, you pick what you want. Lot should have never taken that. In a sense, he's almost warning him, hey, you shouldn't go down there. There's sinful people. That's a sinful land. Bad things are going to happen. And then what happens? Bad things happen, right? And he gets taken. So imagine if you were there. I'll be honest with you guys. I don't do well with this. It's a whole heart. Hey, he made his bed. He's got to sleep in it, right? I warned him. He made bad decisions. I guess you just got to learn sometimes from your bad decisions. And we need to pray. We need to be filled with the Spirit to know when to do at what time. But let's turn to Galatians chapter 6. And we can be reminded of what the Lord asks of us when people fall into the consequences of their sins. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourselves so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Family, this is so hard. Not only should we be giving them good and wise counsel, not only should we be giving them biblical advice, but then when they don't heed our advice, you got to still try to win them over. You got to still try to visit them. You still got to try and go and love on them. Why? Because that's what Christ has done for each and every one of us. We were dead in our sins, and yet Christ died for us. We don't love him first. He's the one that loved us first, that died for us. And what type of a heart? In the I told you so heart, in the drill sergeant heart? No, in a spirit of gentleness. Why should we do it in gentleness? Because we have to be careful that we will not be tempted by the very same things that they are going through. And often that is the case when a man is hard on another man for his sins and for his mistakes. It comes right around just to him and you see him fall to the same exact sins and hard stances he was taking to this other man. We need to be so careful that many of us, we think we're something. But in reality, we're all nothing. Every person in this room, we are nobodies. 
We're nobodies. We are nothing without Christ. And if we think our righteousness is because we have trained ourselves or we have taught ourselves, if we think our goodness is because of how often we're in church, family, don't be deceived thinking you're something when you are nothing. You're deceiving yourself. The last thing here is it's interesting. He says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Again, as we've been looking through Genesis, we've been asking ourselves, who's the boss, right? Who's the boss? And now here in Galatians, we see the law of Christ. And if you hear and you say, I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven when I die. That means that you're saying you're a Christian. You're a disciple of Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's our priest. He's our commander. So now if you have someone with that much authority in our lives or should have authority in our lives, and he has a law, hopefully you want to check it out and see what this law is. So let's turn to John chapter 13. What is fulfilling the law of Christ? And Christ, he gives us a ton of commandments. And it's important to know them as commandments. They're not suggestions. They're not pleads. They're commandments. John chapter 13. We'll look at verse 14 and 15. And then jump to verse 34. John 13 verse 14, it reads... If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And now verse 34 A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, what a great commandment for us. To be frank with you, what an impossible commandment for us to be able to obey. For us to love others in the same way that Jesus Christ has loved us. That's the commandment. And I love Jesus because he always teaches by example. He doesn't ask the disciples to do something that he himself didn't just do. If we had more time, we could go through John 13. But this is right after he washes all the disciples' feet, which was what the lowest slave in the house would do. He was the foot washer. And again, what's the commandment of Jesus for us to wash each other's feet? Should we have foot washing services? No, those are pretty awkward, right? At least us as a church, the Lord hasn't called us that. People go out, they get their many petties before they go to the foot washing service. Maybe you go to a church and they do that. Man, that's up to you. That's up to your church. But what's truly what this means is that for us to be able to take the lowest of the low in serving someone else. It's like if someone will call you, hey, hey, Zach, my toilet's clogged. Can you come unplug it for me? Like, Wait, what? Who are you calling? You need me to do what? Your, your bathroom is dirty. You need me to clean it up. What is wrong with you, right? We can have that type of pride. Sometimes people, they want to serve in church, and they know where they want to serve. At the pulpit, on the stage, where everyone can see them. You need me to serve in the bathroom? No, I can't serve there. I can't clean there. I don't do that, right? The Lord has gifted these hands for the guitar or the piano, right? Not for cleaning the bathroom. And that's pride in us. And Jesus, he says, hey, look at me. I am God. Come down from heaven. And what do I do? I serve the people. 
Jesus didn't come and start saying, everybody bow down to me. Everybody start following me. Everybody just do exactly. No, Jesus, he came as a humble servant at first. When he returns, that's when he returns as king and ruler and judge of this planet. But family, how are we with one another? How are we with jealousy, with greed, with gossip? How are we with slander? How are we when someone at the picnic takes the last piece of dessert that we really, really wanted, right? How do we deal? Are we loving them as Christ has loved us? Do we think that Christ has loved us only a teeny tiny bit? That we're genuinely good and amazing and awesome people and Jesus is just that little cherry on top of us? Or do we realize that, man, I'm the worst. I'm a sinner. I'm a terrible person, and if it wasn't for Jesus and the regeneration in my life and in my soul, I would still be the worst. I am the worst. It's only through him. We need to follow our Lord. We need to follow our teacher and love one another. Again, is there any unforgiveness in your heart? Is there any bitterness in your heart, especially to another Christian? There's no room for that family. Our Lord, our commander, our boss, he's calling you, and he's telling you that's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to do that. You need to forgive. You need to love. You need to fix things. You need to make things right. That's what Christ has called us to do. Don't worry. It happens to us. It happens to pastors at the pulpit. Um, but we go back to Genesis 14. Finally, one last verse you can write down on this topic of Abram showing so much grace and mercy, going out to save his hard-headed nephew that has made bad decisions. You can write down Proverbs 17, verse 17. It says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I don't know if you've been there. You grew up with a, a group of friends, and all of a sudden everybody starts leaving, but then bad things happen, bad seasons happen, and then who do they call? <laughs> they call you right back up. Hey, man, I need this. And what's the case? What do we do? Hey, why don't you call all the other friends you picked, right? Why don't you go and all those people you like hanging out with, why don't you ask them for help? No, we're supposed to be like Christ and be there in the midst of those trials, of those hardships. And the same goes true for us. Everything is fine and dandy when everything is fine and dandy, right? Everybody wants to be your friend when your health is great, when you're handsome, when you're cool, when you got a new job or a new car, when you got a new boat or a pool. Everybody wants to be your friend. But when life is rough, when you're going through cancer or through difficult times, that's when you're going to really see who your friends and who your family is. And Lot, we see that he leaves his uncle. None of his friends are able to save him. Who's the one that goes and has to save him? It's Abram. Uh, so let's go back to Genesis 14. Hopefully you're there now. In verse 15, Abram, he's a faithful man. He's a man of faith. He's a man of the Lord. Uh, but he's a wise warrior. In verse 15, it tells us he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants, and he defeated them, and he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, and he brought back all the goods. And he also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. I would love to see that altercation, right? The first time Abram sees Lot there in the prison or in the dungeon. Hey, how's it going, right? How's your decision making going? And I don't think he was harsh on him. I don't think he was sitting there, told you so, right? Aren't you lucky you have me as an uncle, right? I don't think he was doing anything like that. But now imagine if you're Lot. 
And so often we are Lot. Lot and all his possessions are taken away. He's made bad decisions and now he's lost everything. Yet in God and his grace and Abram and his grace, they go, they save him, they save all his stuff, they save all his people. But he goes right back to where he was before. And now the next time, just like when we don't deal with our sin, next time it costs him even more. Family, we need to heed these warnings when we go through bad situations and we make bad decisions and now we're reaping the consequences of our decision and Christ gives us grace and the consequences aren't as bad as they should be. Be careful, learn from them, turn to the Lord, seek repentance because next time it's going to just be worse and worse and worse. You can write down 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Peter tells us, It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Guys, that's us, right? Every January 1st, that's us. This is the year, right? New me, new year, new me, right? I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to get right with the Lord. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to quit that. A week goes by, a day goes by, 10 minutes goes by, and what happens? We're right back in the mud. We need to seek the Lord. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own effort. It's asking, Lord, I need you to regenerate me. And we talked about repentance. It's changing. It's doing something radical. That repentance without any work involved or any change involved, it's not repentance. Just saying that you're sorry, it doesn't mean anything, right? You should say that you're sorry, but now there should be movement towards those words. We talked about that in link last time. But we need to be repenting. We need to asking, Lord, I need you to change my heart. I need you to change my mind. And again, it depends on how great of a person you think you are. If you think you're the best of the best, Lord, you don't got to change much. I brought the full package for you, God. I got it for you, right? I'm here for you. I'm the man of the hour for you. But if you come as that servant, I think of the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus basically, he warns her, hey, I came for the Jews. I didn't come for the Gentiles. I didn't come for you. So I'm not going to come here and I'll give the food that's supposed to be for the kids. I'm not going to give it to the dogs. And now does she puff up with pride? Does she say, how dare you? No, she says, yeah. But even the dogs, they're able to eat the crumbs off the master's table. So again, how great do you think you are? How little of Jesus do you think you need? It's a great check for us in our hearts. Back to Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. It tells us, Then after his return from the defeat of Chedo, man, someone has to name their dog or chameleon or something, this name after this man, right? Chedo Laomer and the kings who were with him and king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sabbath, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. We see here Abram right after a great moment of triumph, right? Here's a guy, he's living in tents, he's living out in the wilderness, and he's able to get 300 of his servants and defeat four kings and their kingdoms that just defeated five kings and their kingdoms. And he's able to triumph, he's able to beat them, but we need to be careful, family, because it's those times of great triumph or great spiritual highs that our pride can blind us. And we can lose track of our great need for God to sustain us. We can grow in pride thinking, hey, I'm invincible. 
And then what happens? We make bad decisions. We choose the wrong king. And now we begin to eat dirt. Abram, that's what he's going to be faced with. He's going to be faced with two different kings. One from Salem and one from Sodom. One from sin and one from peace. One that's a type of Jesus Christ and the other one that's a type of the flesh. And we're constantly dealt with these two kings. Who are you going to serve? Your flesh and comfort or Jesus and salvation? First we see Sodom, he comes out to meet him, but now it focuses in on King Melchizedek, right? King of Salem, we can turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The author of Hebrews grows into greater depth into this portion of scripture. So that's why we're going to go there. Hebrews chapter 7, after the epistles, after the tea books, then you can go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7 verse 1, it tells us, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Again, imagine how much pride you have to deal with. It's not just that Abram went in and out like stealth operational. He slaughtered these kings. We need to be so careful. The times that I see people fall most in their walks with the Lord is after a great conference, a great retreat, a great missions trip, and then they don't apply the things that the Lord had shown them. But we'll keep reading verse 2. To whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So for us, there's a couple of things for us to see here. Melchizedek, at worst, at least, he's a type of Jesus Christ. Not like he's Jesus' Christ's brother or a clone or anything like that. No, he's a type. Like David, he's a type of Jesus. Joseph, he's a type of Jesus. And then you have Jesus. So Melchizedek, at worst, he's a type of Jesus. At best, it's a theophany. This is Jesus coming down to earth before he's come in the New Testament, which we see coming into the time of Rome and of all of the things going on there. But he is the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means he was the king of peace. That's what Salem is translated to. He was the king of the original Jerusalem before David went in and took it over. And he was also the priest of God Most High. And what does he bring to Abram? Wine and bread. Again, another picture pointing to Jesus. We don't want to get too much into this debate. If you go through Hebrews 7, there's a whole lot of he is like Jesus Christ. He is like Jesus is not, this is Jesus, the Son of God, right? At the end of verse 3, he says, but made like the Son of God. When it's talking about him having no father or no mother, it's just talking about when he shows up and meets Abraham, there's no genealogies for him when he just shows up on the scene. But that's a battle we don't need to get in. 
What we can get into is that Melchizedek, he was a good priest. You see, he blesses the God Most High and he blesses Abram. And it's important for us as we look at our pastors, as we look at our churches, who are they blessing? There's a lot of pastors that they just bless themselves, right? They just bless themselves, their pocket, their jets, their suits. That's the only person that they're looking to bless. There's pastors that the only person that they bless is the Lord. And then they're a jerk to everybody else, right? And they're not around the people. They don't spend time with the people. And they only bless the Lord. And then you have priests that they only bless the people. And the scriptures watered down. There's no truth to it. And there's no meeting with God. So we need to be careful of that. Melchizedek, he's a good priest. We also see that he's not only a priest, but he's also a king. Something that the Lord did not want for his people. To have so much power. Power in leading the people to the Lord and then power over the authority. We see one king, he tried to do that and he got struck with leprosy. Another king, King Saul, he tried to do the sacrifice and his whole kingdom spiraled out of control out of that. But yet Melchizedek is able to do it. Just like who? Man, Jesus Christ. Right? I wish we had more time to go through Hebrews. He is our priest that has gone through our same sufferings. He's gone through our same trials. He's gone through our same pain. And he's able to love us. And he's so amazing because he doesn't need to ask for forgiveness for his own sins. He doesn't need to be with the Lord sacrificing over and over and over again. He paid for it once and for all. An amazing king, an amazing priest that we serve. And here he's meeting with Abram. And he's the one that brings him the food. Again, a picture for us. Where are we eating the Lord, the Word, that's the only thing that's going to fulfill us in this life, family. It's the Lord. It's His Word. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Righteousness is the only true path to peace. People look for that peace in escape, in evasion, or in compromise, but they will only find it in righteousness. Peace without righteousness is like the smooth surface of the stream, before it takes its awful Niagara plunge. People, they're always looking for peace. People are always looking for comfort. People are always looking for solitude and quietness. But how rarely are we seeking the Lord and his word? How rarely am I waking up early, leaving my phone in a different room and saying, Lord, I need to spend time with you. And the more time we spend with the Lord, the more we allow him to change our lives and our decision making, the things we do, Family, the more at peace you're going to be, the more you're going to be able to go to sleep and not have any worries, not have any concerns, not have any worries that someone's going to find out who you really are or your parents are going to walk into your room at the wrong time or your spouse is going to call you at the wrong time, your boss is going to catch you what you're doing. You don't have to be in that constant turmoil and worry and anxiety. The Lord, he wants to give us peace. We also see Abram, he gives King Melchizedek, a king of the spoils. And it says the choicest spoils. That's literally the top of the heap. It's giving him the creme de la creme. He's giving God his best, his absolute best. After risking his own life in this war to save his carnal nephew's bad decision making. He should have said, you want a tent? Right? He didn't even ask for it. He gave it out of his own heart. But, dude, where were you in battle, right? How did you just show up now with some juice and bread? Where were you when we were fighting? We could have used you. How do you just show up right now? But he sees who he is. He sees that he's a type of Jesus, that he's glorifying the Lord, that he's drawing him nearer to the Lord. And, family, what are we bringing to God? 
Are we giving God our best? Are we giving God our best? And all he has is for a tenth, a tenth of our best. Are we giving God a tenth of our best? Unfortunately, it happens a lot that we give the Lord from our leftovers, from the leftover of our time, leftover of our money. I know not you guys. Sometimes people think, man, I'm going to throw this away. Wait, I think the church could use this, right? Don't you love gifts like that? Like, hey, I was going to throw this away, but this is for you. You're like, no, I don't want that. That should go in the trash. Where are you going to put it, right? I know that doesn't happen to any of you guys, but sometimes we do that with the Lord. And that wouldn't work in any other relationship, right? Husbands, imagine you get home after a long day of work and, honey, I warmed up for you a tenth of the leftovers. Wait, what? You did what? The le- not even like a tenth of the best, not even a tenth of a steak, tenth of the leftovers? It wouldn't work, right? Honey, I want you to treat yourself to the mall, so I spent all the money on like fishing and hobbies and the Dolphins game, but I'm going to give you a tenth of what's left over. Don't spend it all in one place, right? I just want to bless you. It wouldn't work out that well. Are we giving the Lord our absolute best? And all he asks is for a tenth of that. Are we tithing to the Lord? Are we waiting till the end? Lord, if there's any left, then I'm going to give some to you, right? Hopefully that's not how you treat your kids and their meals and their lunch money, right? Sorry, son. It's all gone. I used it all. There's nothing left. I'll give you a tenth of what's left over, right? Open that thing in the car and see how much change is left in there. And Man, go have yourself a great lunch. That'd be grimy. That wouldn't be right. So for us, man, for the Lord, may we give him our absolute best. That's what Abraham did. We go back to Genesis 14, now in verse 21. It tells us, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me, and I will take the, and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Now Abram, he's dealing with the king of Sodom, the king of this flesh, this king of sin. And what he tells him, he says, hey, you can keep everything. You can keep all the goods. Just bring the people, leave them back in the city. And imagine how much wealth there is here, right? It's like if Miami was under attack and everybody in Miami got taken away, the Russians took away everybody in Miami, right? You go out, you save everybody, and now the mayor says, hey, you can keep all the money, all the boats, all the stocks. You can keep everything. Just let the people go back to their houses. It's a whole lot of wealth, right? But what Abram says, he goes, no, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a single thing from you. What this is telling us is Abram made this decision way before he went out to battle. And family, it's the same thing for us. Have you made the decision before you're in the midst of the battle? Before you're in the midst of the decision, before you're in the midst of the trial, have you made the decision of who you are going to serve? Before your kids ask you, before your friends ask you, before your boss asks you, have you made that decision in your heart ahead of time? Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, you can write it down. The New King James Version says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The New American Standard, it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. 
This is telling us Daniel, he made the decision before he was faced with it. We need to decide who are you going to serve before the trial comes, family. You need to decide ahead of time. This is what our family is going to stand for. This is who we're going to serve. This is what we do. This is what we don't do as a family, as a Christian, as a believer. We need to make up our minds ahead of time. Abram, he swore unto the Lord before the battle. He purposed in his heart. He made up his mind that he would not take a single thing from a pagan king, not even a thread. Talk about the opposite of Lot, right? You see, Lot, he was enamored with how beautiful and lush the area of Sodom and Gomorrah was. Abram, he was just enamored with his God. So family, who or what are we enamored with? Are we enamored with this world? With the things of this world, with money or sex or power? Is that what you're enamored with? Or are you enamored with the Lord? That the God, the creator of heaven and earth, he sent his only son Jesus to die for you. To die for me. Is that what we're enamored with? Is that what we're in love with? Let's turn to Psalm 15 real quick. And Abram, he, he makes this decision ahead of time. But then he realized, man, this is going to cost me a whole lot. I didn't realize this king was going to offer me everything. All the money, all the goods. Lord, I know you promised me you were going to give me a great blessing. I made the promise. Now you have this king telling me he's going to give me this blessing. I guess it's you, right? And so often we try to do that. We try to rationalize our sin. We make a promise to God and then we're faced with something. We're like, God, this must be you, right? Because my flesh loves this. So it has to be you, right, God? This has to be you. And in Psalm 15, I had never saw this portion of scripture in this light. Psalm 15, verse 1, it says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Family, what are the promises that you have made to God? What are the things that you told the Lord? God, if you save me out of this, I'm going to start doing this. Or Lord, if this happens, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to focus more on you if you do this one thing, right? Lord, if you save my life, I'm going to give it all to you. If you change this one thing, I'm going to stop drinking or I'm going to stop smoking. What are the promises we have made to the Lord? Are we abiding by them? Are we doing them? Are we men and women of our word? Right? What, what kind of friends do you like around you? I've never heard anyone say, man, I love, I love having a bunch of liars around me, right? It, it keeps life like so, oof, you never know what's going to happen, right? You make plans to go to this place and then they don't show up, right? You say, hey, we'll go Dutch and then they just dip after the bill comes, right? I love friends like that. You never know what's going to happen. It makes life so enjoyable, right? Nobody ever says that. Everybody, nobody likes a liar, right? Nobody likes a liar. And how do we treat our Lord? And family as Christians, what is our word worth? What kind of a testimony do you have, right? The Lord, he warns us, he says, don't swear on anything. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to have different levels of truth. Just always say the truth. Men, do, do we honor the things that we sign up for? 
What is our code, right? Basically, that's what we're asking ourselves. What is our code? Who are we as people? And if you're here, you say you're a Christian, you say you're going to heaven. We're the children of God. We're the priests of God. We are the overcomers of God. We are the warriors of God. So what is our code of conduct? been reading a, a book with Levi, and it talks about this soldier who comes home for a summer, and he's talking with his nephew about different things. So he asks his nephew, what's the most important part of being a warrior? So the nephew says, working out? And he goes, no, it's not working out. He says, fighting in battles? No, it's not fighting in battles. He goes, eating healthy, being healthy? He goes, no, it's the code they uphold and the code that they live by. That's the most important part of a warrior. So family, we're blessed. We don't have to write our own code or make up our own code. It's been given to us. We have our code right here, but are we upholding it? Are we living by it? Or are we constantly going against the code and the job we signed up for? The relationship we signed up for, right? In a marriage, when they say these wedding vows and either the husband or the wife starts breaking those vows, it hurts. And everybody can say, hey, what about those vows that you made there on the altar in front of everyone? For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, right? What happened to those vows? And we as believers... When we say, Jesus, you're my Savior and you're my Lord, that's a heavy vow, family. May we keep it. May we uphold it. May we look and act and breathe like Christians. May we say the truth like a Christian. May we love our neighbor, love our boneheaded nephews making bad decisions. May we love him like a Christian should, right? Christians, pastors, it has a bad connotation in today. And that's because a lot of people have given it that bad connotation. But for us, hopefully we can change it. And if we abide by God's word, we're going to change it. That's just the thing. If you act the way this book says, the people around you, they're going to be amazed. Man, you work hard. You care about your work. You don't look at these nasty pictures like the rest of us. Why don't you drink and smoke like us? Why don't you curse like us? What's, what's different about you? The world's going crazy. Why are you relaxed? Why are you not freaking out? That should be happening within us. You see, family, Abram, he did not want anyone or anything getting the glory for what God had done except for God. In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are still too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful. Israel, instead of boasting in God, they would begin to boast in their own selves, saying by their own power, by their own hand, they have delivered themselves. Again, family, to what or who do we attribute our success in this world? Is it us, how smart we are, how strong we are, how incredible I am? Or do we attribute our success to the Lord? Are we puffing our pride up? Are we giving the glory to God, saying it's the Lord God Most High who holds all things together? You see, Abram, he was growing in his confidence in his blessing of the Lord. And he didn't want anyone or anything to take credit for that blessing. He didn't want in a decade or two when people see the blessing that Abraham had for other people to say, man, wow, look at that. It was that king of Sodom. That was a great deal, Abram. You got that and now you're blessed. He didn't want anybody to ever be able to say that. David Guzik, he says, when we are willing to pursue human measures of success... Using man-centered wisdom and methods, if success does come, how can we really say that God gave the success? 
It's much better to follow God's wisdom so that when the success does come, he gets all the glory. And it's evident to everyone that it was his work. What a blessing it is when the Lord gets the glory. Genesis 14 verse 24 says, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Finally, Abram knew the vow that he had made, and he knew what he sensed the Lord calling him to, but he did not judge others based on his own vow to the Lord. This is where a lot of Christians get into trouble. The Lord gives you a certain bar to live by. The Lord gives you a certain place to live. The Lord gives you a certain vow that you've made to the Lord. But now you're trying to judge everyone by that standard. And unless it's in God's word, then yeah, we should be upholding that standard as believers. But for some of us, the Lord gives us higher standards. For some of us, the Lord says, hey, you can't do this. You can't play cornhole. Because when you play cornhole, you go crazy, right? And you just get addicted to it. You start watching it on ESPN3. And man, you just, you become crazy. And all you do is cornhole, cornhole, right? And for some of us, that's the way we are. There's random vows that the Lord has given us. But then we can get like a Pharisee. And now we're just like, burn all the cornhole, right? Get rid of all of it. No one can ever do this. And it's a vow that you have made alone to the Lord. Matthew Henry says, those who are strict in restraining their own liberty, yet ought not to impose those restraints upon the liberties of others, nor to judge them accordingly. We must not make ourselves the standard to measure others by. A good man will deny himself that liberty which he will not deny another, contrary to the practice of the Pharisees. And again, we need to live toward the standard that God has given us. But now we don't judge everyone else based on that standard. We don't say, hey, I'm so great and awesome at this. Everybody should be as great and awesome as I am, right? It's a lot of pride that creeps in when we do that. Matthew 23, verse 4, it tells us about the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That creeps into church. That now we want to base everybody else. Hey, this is what the Lord has commanded me. So now everybody has to do it. That's not the case, family. And also the inverse, right? He didn't say, hey, these four guys, they're going to take from the spoil. So God, I guess this is what you want me to do. No, he stood by his convictions. 